نحن نقص عليك أحسن القصص بما أوحينا إليك هذا القرآن وإن كنت من قبله لمن الغافلين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولاهما بعد So we continue on our series of the stories of the prophets and we're still in the introductory phases and we're going over preliminary remarks. We're going to be talking about uh, aspects of uh, prophethood that we need to be aware of before we jump into the stories of the prophets one by one. And in my last lecture, I had begun uh, the topic regarding uh, the specialities of the prophets. What makes them different or at least what do we know that makes them different from the rest of us? They are fully human and yet obviously there are perks and there are privileges and there are responsibilities and there are things that are unique to them that are not uh, accessible or not common in the rest of mankind and in the end of the day that is what makes them prophets. So uh, in the last lecture I had begun the discussion of uh, the biggest matter really, the most important matter that makes a prophet a prophet and that is prophecy. What makes a prophet a prophet is the revelation from Allah or in Arabic wahi. And I had begun the discussion and we will continue from where we left off that I had mentioned that there are three main, the highest types of wahi that Allah mentions in the Quran, Surah Shura verse 51, that uh, Allah Azza wa inspires directly into the heart of the Prophet or He speaks from behind a veil. And this is the highest level that Allah Azza wa Jal um, directly speaks uh, into the uh, directly speaks to the prophets uh, and he's and he did this to the prophet Musa alayhi salam and also to our prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the third is that he sends a messenger and that is Jibreel and Jibreel then inspires whatever he uh, desires to inspire, whatever Allah tells him to inspire. However, there are more types of inspiration and I'm going to quickly go over uh, one of the most famous lists ever done and that is the list by the famous scholar Ibn al-Qayyim in his book Zad al-Ma'ad. He mentions that there are at least seven categories of wahi, at least seven stages or levels of inspiration and uh, not all of them uh, are the same level. They are of different types and levels and some of them are given to non-prophets as well. And he begins with the one that is the most common and the one that is given to non-prophets and that is true dreams. And I had explained the concept of true dreams in the last lecture and I had mentioned that uh, true dreams remain uh, in the ummah as our Prophet وسلم, said, the only matter that is still remaining of prophethood is true dreams. As for the dr dreams of the prophets, the prophets do not dream except from Allah. Their dreams are all uh, signs of the future, portending what is going to happen. So everything that the Prophet sees while they are asleep, it is a prophecy. It is something in the future and so they recognize something uh, as uh, having uh, going to occur and that is why we know from the dreams of the Prophets, they are all true. A second category of inspiration is a thought or an idea that comes into the heart of the Prophet via the angel. As in the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu that the angel Jibreel, he has put into my 
uh, heart. He has put this idea into, he has whispered into my soul, we can say, that no human shall die until the rizq that Allah has written for him is completed. And therefore, فَأَجْمِلُوا فِي الطلب, Be beautiful and seek your rizq in a good manner because you're going to get what Allah has decreed for you. Now, here our Prophet ﷺ said that the angel Jibreel, he whispered into my soul. Okay, so this is the type of inspiration that Jibreel is saying something to the heart of the Prophet ﷺ. This is a second category. A third category is that the angel Jibreel comes in the form of a man and speaks to the Prophet ﷺ the way that men speak to one another. And sometimes the other angels would see Jibreel in that fashion and form. And it is well known that when this would occur, he would take on the form of the famous companion, Dihya Al-Kalbi, Dihya Al-Kalbi. And the reason for this is that Dihya, so uh, Jibreel would sometimes, Allah allowed him to be shown to the uh, uh, the, the other Sahaba, even Aisha radiallahu anha once said, O Messenger of Allah, why was Dihya speaking to you? And the Prophet said, did you see someone with me? And she said, yes. So he said that wasn't Dihya, that was Jibreel. Now notice here, he was surprised that Aisha saw somebody with him. Because generally speaking, the default is that when Jibreel comes, no one else is even aware, no one sees him. But sometimes Jibreel allows himself to be uh, seen. And therefore, uh, when Aisha said, why was Dihya talking with you? So uh, the Prophet expressed that surprise. Now, why Dihya al-Kalbi? And uh, the reason for this is that Dihya al-Kalbi, was considered to be uh, the most handsome of all of the Sahaba, okay? The most handsome of the Sahaba, and the angels are handsome. The angels are perfect in their creation. So even when they are manifested in the realm of men, when they appear in the realm of men, they will appear in the shapes or in the bodies of the most handsome. And if they wanted to, they would appear as strangers, such as in the famous hadith of Jibreel, when Jibreel came, uh, Umar ibn Khattab said that a, a good-looking man came, you know, very perfectly performed, everything looked good about him, his clothes were amazing, you know, not a single crease on them, right? And no, none of us recognized him, because in that incident, Jibreel needed to come as a stranger. Generally speaking, if Jibreel was allowed to be shown, then they didn't want to cause, uh, you know, whispering, who is this, what's going on here? That would have happened in the hadith of Jibreel, like who is this man? The point is a stranger needs to come because people need to be curious what's going on. However, in other circumstances, you don't want to raise the alarm bell. And so what do you do? So Jibreel would have come in the form of a companion that everybody else recognizes, and that's Dihya al-Kalbi. And if they saw him, they would think it is Dihya, and of course it is not uh, Dihya. So this is the third category of an angel coming uh, in the form of a man, either a stranger or somebody that they recognize, and then a normal conversation occurring with him and the Prophet wasallam. And sometimes the other Sahaba would see this and they would see a man. Sometimes they would even hear the conversation as in the famous hadith of uh, Jibreel. However, as far as we are aware, never did the Quran come down in this uh, fashion. The first one, two, and three, never did the Quran come down in a dream. Never did the Quran come in a thought or an idea via the, the angel. Never did the Quran come that uh, everybody's seeing Jibreel and Jibreel is speaking uh, and people are watching what is going on. This did not happen in this fashion to the best of our uh, knowledge. Point number four, Point number four, 
that the angel comes to the Prophet and the Prophet goes into what we would call a trance. And so his eyes would close, he would be concentrating, his eyebrows would become furrowed up, and somehow he would be disconnected from the world around him, and he would then become into the world of the angel somehow. We don't know how. His soul or his senses would then be able to communicate with the angels directly. And it is reported that multiple times the Sahaba, whenever the Prophet went into this uh, uh, trance-like state, that they understood what is going on and they awaited. So multiple Sahaba, it is said that they would see the Prophet close his eyes, uh, sweat would come on a cold day, it would become, it's a very intense moment. Sometimes the camel he was on would sit down, sometimes if he was lying down on the lap of Aisha or something that they would sense a heaviness that maybe even the bone might break they felt like the heaviness would come so there's pressure and it's difficult and the Prophet is entering into a different realm if you like in, in order to communicate with the uh, angel uh, and in that time frame he would not respond to anybody. If somebody spoke to him, if somebody said something he would not respond, he would be absolutely silent. However, he would be aware of what is going on and when that trance-like state was lifted up, then he would be able to re respond to what was said. So it is not as if he would not be aware of what is going on. On the contrary, it is as if one side of him is fully aware, but he cannot get involved in this world. And the other side is involved in communicating with the angel. So when that conversation finishes and he returns fully into this world, then he can respond to somebody asking a question. And it is again reported multiple times, that somebody might have come up, you know, to the Prophet and asked a question and did not get a response. And they did not understand what is going on. And then the Prophet would finish the wahi and then say, where is that person? Call him back. And then he would say, oh, I wasn't able to respond to you. This is the answer to your question. So this shows us the Prophet literally, it is as if two things are going on at once and he is able to deal with one of them at the time, but he is aware of what is going on in the human uh, realm. So this is the uh, the fourth level, the angel appearing in angelic form, and the Prophet ﷺ cutting off from this world and then entering in his own metaphysical state. We don't know how or what. We entering into the realm of the angels and communicating with the angels. And our Prophet ﷺ himself said that that is more difficult than any of the previous ones. This state is a more difficult one because he said, It is more difficult for me. And in one hadith in Sahih Bukhari, he said that it is like the ringing of a bell. Now, this has generated a lot of discussion, but I think uh, there's no need to go into all of these different tangents. It's very self-evident that, you know, when uh, a loud noise is reverberating, what happens? We cannot pay attention to anything else. You know, I mean, maybe some of us have experienced a false fire drill, right? When loud, you know, noises are coming and you cannot concentrate on anything except for that noise. So this is what is the Prophet is saying is that it's just very loud and nothing else can, you know, uh, can be concentrated on. And it is just something that while that is going on, you're not able to get involved in anything until that noise uh, finishes. So this is what our Prophet described the phenomenon as, مثل salsalati al-jarasi, like the ringing of a uh, bell. This is category four. Category five, is a higher level and it is a rarer level. And category five is that the Prophet Sallallahu uh, Alaihi Wasallam 
sees Jibreel in his original form. He sees Jibreel in his original form, right? So category uh, three, he sees Jibreel in the form of a man. Category four, that he doesn't actually see Jibreel, but he's communicating with Jibreel in the angelic realm. Or he might be seeing Jibreel in some angelic form, we don't know exactly. Category five, he sees Jibreel in the original form that Allah created Jibreel in. Because you see the angels being created of light, they are not like us with flesh and blood, we cannot change our bodies. Both the angels and the jinns, they have the characteristic of taking on any shape because they don't have a physical flesh. They don't have a mass like we do. And therefore, the angels have the luxury and the, the jinn as well, that they can take on any shape. And uh, generally speaking, the evil jinn, they like to take on uh, evil shapes, shapes that are terrifying, shapes that are not pleasant, and that's their nature. And the angels take on beautiful, angelic presence, right? The angels take on soothing and, and, and uh, comforting uh, appearances because that is their uh, nature. And so the original, uh, if you like, creation of Jibreel, the original shape of Jibreel is something that even our Prophet وسلم, did not see regularly. He only saw very, very few times. Some ulama say twice, some ulama say three times. That's all that he saw. And it is so magnificent that Allah Himself alludes to this. When Allah says in Surah Al-Najm, لَقَدْ رَأَى مِنْ آيَاتِ رَبِّهِ الْكُبْرَى He saw of the biggest miracles and signs of Allah. He, meaning the Prophet saw of the biggest miracles of Allah, meaning Jibreel. So the fact that the Prophet saw Jibreel is something that Allah indirectly, indirectly because it's all pronouns, he saw the sign of Allah. What, it, what is all of this? The tafsir of the scholars of, the, uh, the, the commentary of the scholars of tafsir, and in fact even the Sahaba ibn Abbas and others, they say the Prophet saw Jibreel in his original form. So it is so magnificent to see Jibreel in the original form that Allah praises the Prophet and gifts him this divine gift, a gift that hardly any human being has ever received. We don't know who else received it, which of the Prophets received it, we do not know. Now, when did he see Jibreel in his original form? Well, he saw him at least twice in his original form. The first time was uh, when the revelation uh, of uh, the uh, Iqra came down. Uh, and the second time was when the Prophet went on Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj. He went on the journey of his Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj. And the first time, of course, he was terrified. And so he didn't absorb that imagery uh, uh, in the way that he would do the second time around. It is the second time that uh, the, the Prophet is praised, ma fu'adu ma ra'a, that the Prophet is praised, that he looked and he did not hesitate, he did not blink, and he gazed, so that was that courage, <coughs> excuse me, that was that courage and that bravery. And the Prophet looked upon these magnificent wonders and did not flinch, and uh, Ibn Hazm and others, they comment that if any of us had seen a fraction of what he had seen, we might have, you know, died of a heart attack, you know, we would not have been able to live. And our Prophet saw all of that, and he came back and he went back to sleep uh, after the journey of Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj. So the point being that, uh, this is category number uh, five, seeing the angel in his original form. And of course, we are told just a few descriptions that the angels was larger than anything, you know, man can imagine.
that Angel Jibreel had 600 wings. Qad said the ufuq that the whole horizon was blocked because he was so magnificent and uh, beautiful. So uh, this is category number five. Category number six is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspires directly uh, in the night of Alissa al Miraj uh, and the conversation between him and the uh, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam of the wahi that is not kalam, that is not speech, right? Because that's going to be category seven. So category six and seven, there's a bit of an overlap. That category six is the inspiration that Allah Azza wa Jal gives him, but into the heart directly. And category seven is that Allah speaks to him from behind the veil, okay? So six and seven are both direct. But the difference is that six is a speech that goes to the heart. And seven is a speech that is heard by the by the uh, ears, and this is the highest level. And this level was given to three, as far as we are aware. Uh, two mentioned in the Quran, and one mentioned in the Hadith. So, as for uh, the uh, the ones that are mentioned in the Quran, obviously uh, Musa is mentioned in the Quran. وَكَلَّمَ اللَّهُ مُوسَى تَكْلِيمًا وَكَلَّمَ اللَّهُ مُوسَى تَكْلِيمًا As for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, we refer it, but it is not explicit. The Quran mentions explicit Musa alayhi salam that تِلْكَ الرُّسُلُ فَضَّلْنَا بَعْضُهُمْ عَلَى بَعْضٌ مِنْهُمْ مَنْ كَلَّمَ اللَّهُ These are the Prophets. Some we have preferred over others, and some of them Allah spoke to. The point that Allah, or the, 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 the reason why Allah says, we have preferred some prophets over others, and some we have spoken to, indicates that speaking to a prophet is of the highest levels of prophethood. The fact that Allah speaks to a prophet directly indicates that this is one of the highest honors that can be conferred upon a prophet. And that is why uh, Allah says in the Quran, قَالَ يَا مُوسَىٰ إِنِّ اصْطَفَيْتُكَ عَلَى النَّاسِ بِرِسَالَاتِ وَبِكَلَامِ O Musa, I have chosen you over all of mankind by choosing you to be a prophet and by speaking to you. So Allah spoke to Musa, uh, and because of this, Allah says, I have chosen you over all of mankind. And as for the next prophet, uh, the Quran, of course, mentions this, uh, that يعني, Allah taught Adam the names of everything. Uh, and وَقُلْنَا uh, يَا Adam, We said, O Adam. And the Prophet explicitly says that uh, Adam was an abiyyan mukallama. He was a prophet whom Allah spoke to directly. So this is the second prophet that Allah spoke to directly. And of course, the third is none other than our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam when he went on the night of Isra wal Mi'raj. And this is an honor that we, uh, 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 as far as we know, was not given to any other prophet other than our Prophet wasallam. Even Musa alayhi salam, and of course we love and respect all of them, even Musa alayhi salam, when Allah spoke to him, Allah spoke to him on this earth, that Musa was on this earth. He went to uh, Mount Sinai, and Allah spoke to him there. And as for our Prophet wasallam, Allah called him up to the heavens, and Allah Azza wa Jal granted him an audience in an area and a place that even Jibreel could not be. And Allah Azza wa Jal spoke to him directly uh, from behind his divine veil, and his veil is light. So these are the seven categories of wahid that are mentioned by Ibn al-Qayyim. Once again, the highest level is that of direct speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, category seven. One level below this is uh, direct wahi. 
So not speech, but direct wahi. That Allah Azza wa Jal directly gives wahi to the qalb of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ibn al-Qayyim gives an example of this, is that the entire uh, 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 conversations that took place on the night of Isra al-Miraj, that this could be, uh, parts of it is seven and parts of it is uh, six. So for example, maybe the the, uh, the legislation of the salawat might be, for example, category six. And again, all of this is Ibn al-Qayyim's categorization, and you should be aware that there are other categorizations as well. By the way, there's another category that Ibn al-Qayyim did not mention, and some of the early scholars added it. Alhamdulillah. And that is the category of seeing Allah in a dream. The prophets seeing Allah in a dream. Can the Prophet see Allah in a dream? So again, this is a larger point of controversy and uh, the uh, position that seems to be derived directly from the ahadith is that seeing Allah in a dream is possible for the prophets, yes. Because when they see Allah in a dream, it is not seeing Allah in a state of wakefulness. And seeing Allah in a state of wakefulness cannot occur to any human being in this world. That's something that will happen in the next world. So seeing Allah in a dream is a different type of seeing. It's not a seeing of the eyes of the body. And that's something that is negated, right? لا تدركه الأبصار The eyes cannot grasp Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this world. That's only going to happen in the next as we explained in our series about Jannah. That the ultimate blessing of Jannah is to gaze upon the face of Allah. Allah Jalla Jalaluhu. However, in this world, the prophets of Allah can see Allah not with the eyes of the physical body, but the eyes when they are asleep. And we know this because there are a number of hadith. Of them is the hadith in Tirmidhi that our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that I went to sleep last night and he said, Ra'aytu Rabbi, I saw my Lord. So he said, I saw my Lord in a dream. It's as explicit as possible. And then he mentions an entire conversation that takes place. And so some have added this as another category that is not mentioned in Ibn Qayyim's seven categorization. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. You know, in the end of the day, all of these categorizations, it's our attempt to try to understand a part of the ilm al-ghayb that we're never going to fully understand. So no problem to discuss them. In the end of the day, the, the number of categories of wahi and the realities of wahi are really beyond our imagination and beyond our knowledge. The point is that wahi is one of the many, many gifts that Allah confers upon the prophets. And of course, it is what makes prophets and messengers, prophets and messengers. Now, uh, this leads us to our next point, which is a very simple one. And yet every book of theology goes into a lot of detail trying to quote unquote prove it, even though there is no actual controversy amongst the mainstream Muslim ummah. So we're gonna go over it quickly. And that is the notion that prophecy, prophecy is a gift from Allah that is bestowed upon whomever Allah chooses from amongst the creation. And it is not something that is acquired through the internal spiritual cultivation and the uh, exercise of the acumen of the intellect by specific people. Now, what is the uh, point of this uh, controversy or whatnot? Well, because there were, you know, groups of uh, what are called the falasifa. There were groups of those, you know, Hellenistic influenced intellectual minds. Uh, and in particular, the famous Ibn Sina, Avicenna, you know, uh, Aviro, uh, and, uh, excuse me, not Averroes, I meant uh, Al-Farabi, uh, uh, Al-Kindi as well. You know, see these, these great minds in their own way, 
they contributed immensely to Aristotelian thought, to uh, the Hellenistic tradition. They were strongly influenced by the earlier uh, ancient Greek philosophers. And because of this, they attempted to synthesize aspects of Islam with aspects of Hellenistic thought. And in the process, they ended up um, uh, with some very uh, eccentric uh, views. And uh, many of them were considered to be outside the, um, the folds of orthodoxy. And of those views was the notion that prophets become prophets because they go through a series of internal, uh, if you like, uh, trajectories. They hone their mind, they, they have a skill set that they themselves acquire and they keep on contemplating and they keep on doing whatever needs to be done and they therefore rise up of their own accord until they become a prophet. This is what you know. this strand of uh, these intellectual thinkers thought and so they said prophecy is acquired and not a gift and all of the prophets of the past, they trod down this path of uh, basically uh, 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 contemplation and reflection, right? So this is of course the uh, fundamental premise of Western philosophy. I don't want to go down this tangent. The fundamental premise of Western philosophy in contrast to Eastern and others. The fundamental premise is that, uh, uh, and this is pre-modern philosophy, obviously with post-modernism and with you know modern notions, all of this is thrown out the window, especially after Kant and all this. We're talking about Descartes and pre-Descartes. Descartes, of course, uh, anyway, we're going down the whole tangent here. The, the fundamental concept of Western construct of early Western philosophy is what? Is that via contemplation, via uh, reflection, via internal thought, one can arrive at ultimate truths, okay? And so all you need to do, think of, you know, um, uh, uh, think of the, the, the quintessential uh, philosopher, philosophical pose of the ancient Greeks, which is a man sitting, you know, with his uh, head in deep thought, right? That's the notion of Greek philosophy. All I need to do is to think. And of course, we as Muslims say unequivocally that the mind can only take you so far. This is the height of Western arrogance, the height of Western intellectual philosophical arrogance, the presumption that the mind in and of itself can uh, arrive, can cause you to arrive at the ultimate truths. And nothing could be further from the truth and there are a million ways to disprove this. And this is why even Western philosophy, generally speaking, you know, for the last 200 years has rejected this notion. And of course, currently we're in the phase where they say there's no such thing as truth anyway, right? This whole notion of free for all and, and, and postmodernism and whatnot that everything is construct. And that's why we see what we see. But anyway, back to our uh, topic. There was an entire uh, unplanned tangent. So the point being that in order to refute these uh, pseudo-intellectuals, Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi and Al-Kindi, right? So uh, our own ulama, whenever they then spoke about prophethood, they dedicated long chapters proving that prophethood is not acquired. And this is something the average Muslim knows. You don't even need to think twice about it. There's no need to go into 50 pages of refutation. It's common sense, you know. The prophets are gifted by Allah. Allah chooses the prophets. This is the explicit message of the Quran. Allahu yastafi min al Rusulan wa nas. This is Surah Al-Hajj verse 75. Allah chooses from the angels and from the people, Rusul. 
Allah chooses, Allah created all. And then from the angels, He chose Jibra'il and Mika'il and Israfil and others. And from mankind, He chose Adam and Nuh and, and all of the prophets until our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. As Allah says in Surah Al-An'am verse 124, Allahu Allah knows best where to place His risala. Allah chooses and Allah knows. So it's a fundamental point of theology uh, that we don't need to go into a long tangent because nobody uh, you know, believes this anymore. More, it's understood that prophets are chosen by Allah and Allah Azza wa Jal gifts the prophets with the prophecy, with the wahi, with the revelation. And once Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses them and once Allah announces their prophecy to them, there is unanimous consensus and this is common sense as well, that they can never ever lie about the message. And this is another aspect we're coming to now. So of the characteristics of the prophets, again, all of these lectures last two I think, and then inshallah the next few as well, all of this is gonna be the characteristics of the prophets. What, what, are the, what makes them different? So of the things that makes them different is that when it comes to revelation, and when it comes to describing the revelation and speaking on behalf of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the prophets simply cannot lie. They cannot lie. It's impossible for them to fabricate the truth. They cannot claim that something is from Allah when it is not from Allah, or that something is not from Allah when it is from Allah. He does not speak from his own desires. Rather, what he says is a wahi from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now again, the key point here is that this applies to what the Prophet, any Prophet claims to be from Allah. As for when it is understood that the Prophet is speaking in his role as a human being, in his role as a person, we've already I've spoken about this in many, many, many lectures, many Q and A's, this has been done. Even the Sahaba understood this and that's why when there was a dispute between a couple, a husband and wife, and the Prophet said, why don't you come back together? And the wife said, are you commanding me? Is this from Allah or is this just you? you know, trying to act as an arbitrator. And he goes, no, no, I'm just, yani, I'm just trying to act as an arbitrator. So then she refused, she did not want to go back to her husband. But the point is that they understood that this is something that, uh, you know, the Prophet system has the right to be a human. And of course, when he speaks on behalf of Allah, and of course, we also have uh, the other, uh, you know, the other uh, famous hadith as well of the, of the uh, um, Badr one, that when the army uh, place was chosen, the famous uh, incident where the Sahabi said, O Messenger of Allah, is this something that Allah told you to camp? Or is this something that you chose where you want to camp? And he goes, no, this is something I chose. So then the Sahabi said, in that case, let me suggest another place. And we also have the famous incident of the date palm uh, and the pollinations of the date palms. And I've spoken about that in other lectures. So the point being, when we say that the prophets cannot uh, lie and everything they say is from Allah, we mean uh, they can never lie about anything, but uh, sometimes they can speak from their own knowledge and sometimes they can say from their own experience, but they're not claiming it is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whatever they claim is from Allah, they can never be mistaken about, they can never fabricate, they can never uh, lie. And that is why there can never be any negotiation. Whatever Allah says to the prophets, they must convey. The prophets do not keep anything bottled up that Allah tells them to convey. Allah says in the Quran, Ya ayyuhar rasulu ballig ma unzila ilayka min rabbik fa illam tafal fa ma ballagta risalatahu. O Prophet, O Rasul, 
convey whatever Allah has sent down to you. If you do not do this, then you have failed in conveying the message of Allah. So we are told explicitly that the prophets cannot keep anything bottled up. Whatever comes to them from Allah, they must tell the people. As well, when they tell the people, there is no room for negotiation in that message. They do not have the right to change anything, to alter. And this is something very explicit. Surah Yunus verse 15, look this up. It is the most explicit verse in this regard. Surah Yunus verse 15, Allah says, When our ayat are recited to them, clear ayat are recited to them. Those who don't expect to meet us, they say, Bring another Quran or change something. We don't like this verse. Then Allah says in the Quran, قُلْ Say to them that uh, it is not for me an أُبَدِّلَهُ مِنْ تِلْقَاءِ نَفْسِي I cannot change the Quran on my own. In I only follow what is inspired to me. And inni akhafu in If I were to disobey my Lord, then I fear the punishment of the final day. This verse is very clear. The Quraysh did not like certain aspects of the Quran. And the Quraysh said, Don't bring us another Quran or change some verses, get rid of some verses. And Allah responds back, say back to them, it's not my right to change anything. I'm only conveying, I have to convey, I'm not allowed to change anything. And this leads us to yet another point. So again, all of these we're talking about, some of the specialities and the characteristics of the prophets. Another thing that uh, is of the characteristics of the prophets is that because they are conveying their message, uh, the messages of Allah uh, to mankind, they cannot take advantage of their positions and negotiate something for themselves because of that uh, message. No, they are the servants of Allah and they cannot change anything to make it advantageous for themselves. Surah Ali Imran verse 79. Allah says that makana it is not appropriate for anyone uh, whom Allah has blessed with uh, with the with uh, the kitab and the hikmah and nubuwa that anybody whom Allah gave the book to and wisdom to and prophethood to that thumma yaqula linnasi kunu ibadan li min dunillah that worship me instead of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No prophet, ma kana li basharin. It's not going to happen. Notice Allah says, ma kana li bashar, which means it's just, it's not possible for a human being that Allah chose and Allah gave prophethood and Allah gave a book to and Allah gave and granted wisdom to that once you become a prophet, it is not possible. Now, by the way, the context of this, Allah is saying that Jesus would never have said that he is the son of God or to worship me. And then Allah says, it's impossible for a person whom Allah chose to be a prophet and whom Allah just selected to be the recipient of a book to then go and say to people, Kunu worship me instead of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rather, the prophets only say, worship Allah, your Lord and my Lord. So this is very clear that the prophets cannot uh, change the message for their own advantage and craft a new message. In fact, we are told very explicitly that if they were to do this, 
then the prophets themselves would be punished in front of our eyes in the most severe manner. And this is an amazing series of verses. I want you to look them up. Surah Al-Haqqa verses 44 onwards. Surah Al-Haqqa verses 44 onwards. That there is a threat in the Quran from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's an amazing series of verses. The threat of punishment upon the Prophet if the Prophet were to change the Quran. Now, of course, this is a hypothetical threat. It is an unrealized threat. It is an impossible threat. And in reality, the threat is not to him. It is a warning to us. It's beautiful here. There is no actual threat because the prophets could never do something like this. It's impossible. Allah chose them and they could never change the message. But the point being that Allah is demonstrating that if any prophet were to do this, then this, this is what would happen to him. So what is this? Uh, Surah Al-Haqqa, verse 44 onwards. وَلَوْ تَقَوَّلَ عَلَيْنَا بَعْضَ الْأَقَوِيلِ If the Prophet were to ascribe certain statements from him unto us, if he were to make up some phrases, if he were to say certain things and then say, Allah said this down to me. وَلَوْ تَقَوَّلَ عَلَيْنَا بَعْضَ الْأَقَوِيلِ بعض, some, some phrases, that's all. In other words, literally, if one phrase were to be added that is not in the message, if one word, one qawl were to be added, لَأَخَذْنَا مِنْهُ بِالْيَمِينَ We would hold him by the right hand. ثُمَّ لَقَطَعْنَا مِنْهُ الْوَتِينَ Then we would cut off his neck. أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ subhanallah. Like what imagery? But why? It's not for the Prophet It's not for the believers who understand. It is for the outsiders that don't ever think that this human being can ever ascribe anything to us that is not coming from us. It's impossible. So the threat is not really a threat. It is an affirmation of the loyalty of our Prophet ﷺ and a uh, clear indication that everything in the Quran is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without doubt. Were the messenger to make something up in our name and then ascribe it to us, we would certainly seize him by his right hand in front of all of you. We would overpower him. You would see a force that holding on to him. Then we would severe his uh, aorta, his, his jugular vein, and none of you could protect uh, him against us. None of you could protect if we were to choose to do that. So all of this demonstrates that the reality of prophecy, the reality of uh, wahi uh, is that whatever comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is conveyed fully and it is conveyed without any change and it is conveyed 100% with accuracy. Whatever the Prophet hears, he will convey no change, no substitution, and nothing is added to the message. There's full transparency. And that's why all of these verses put together clearly indicate the reality of the Prophet's being uh, ultimate uh, vessels and conduits of the message of Allah. Allah Azza wa Jal reveals to them the message and they then pass it to us unaltered as it is 100% the original. Now following from this point, this is the corollary uh, to this point, is that because the prophets are acting as conduits, because the prophets are preaching and teaching basically the message of Allah on behalf of Allah, of the most important characteristics of the prophets is that they do not ask for any financial reward 
in return for their roles and responsibilities of prophethood. In other words, being a prophet is not a paid position. You don't get a prophet being a prophet. There is no monetary reward. The reward is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in fact, it is a sign of prophethood to not get compensation for their preaching and teaching. No prophet ever, ever got a compensation for prophesizing, for preaching, for delivering the wahi, for teaching the people what needs to be uh, taught. And this is something that the Quran is very clear about. Allah says in the Quran, that Nuh says to his people, وَيَا قَوْمِ لَا أَسْأَلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ مَا لَا إِنْ أَجْرِيَ إِلَّا عَلَى اللَّهِ Oh my people, I'm not asking you any money. My ajr is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the very first Rasul, he says, لَا أَسْأَلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ مَا لَا Don't give me any money. The Prophet Hud says to his people, وَيَا قَوْمِ لَا أَسْأَلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ أَجْرًا إِنْ أَجْرِيَ إِلَّا عَلَى الَّذِي فَطَرَنِي أَفَلَا تَعْقِلُونَ Oh my people, I'm not asking you for any ajr. I'm not asking you for any reward. My ajr is the one who created me will give it to me. Don't you understand? In other words, none of the prophets ever received a payment for their services from mankind. Not just a monetary payment. No payment was ever given of this dunya. In fact, on the contrary, they had to suffer. And our Prophet himself says in the Quran, Say, I am not asking you for any ajr, any reward or any compensation for this. I'm not asking you for anything, nor do I pretend to be somebody whom I am not. Financial compensation is not permitted for the prophets for their preaching and teaching. Now, uh, to be a little bit more precise, the uh, some of the prophets may uh, earn via political issues, but not via prophethood in and of itself, right? So we're going to come to this point here that, uh, of course, it is allowed for Muslims, it is allowed for everybody else outside of the prophets uh, to earn uh, financial compensation uh, in order to do religious services for the greater benefit of mankind. Our Prophet wasallam said, uh, and hadith is in Bukhari, the best salary that anybody can get is to in order to teach somebody the Quran, right? That the most rewarding uh, salary, if you're gonna pay somebody for anything, then the most blessed payment is that you, you're paying somebody to teach yourself or your children how to read the Quran, right? So, and uh, this is something well known. And of course, the Imams of our communities and religious teachers and whatnot, they're going to get their salaries. This is allowed for the Ummah, but the Prophets have a higher standard. And for them, it is not something that is allowed. So the prophets did not earn any money from their preaching, and therefore all of them, without exception, they had professions by which they earned their income. Our Prophet himself told us that at some point in their lives, all of the prophets were shepherds, all of them. So they were shepherds at one point in their lives, and even our Prophet Muhammad was a shepherd when he was a teenager. And of course our scholars, they comment on this uh, and they say that, uh, that being a shepherd, uh, many things happen because of it. Firstly, there's many, many hours of long solitude. You're away from mankind. This causes you to think and to reflect. Also, it teaches you humility. Uh, also, uh, being with sheep and being with, you know, um, herding animals, it makes you a very humble person and the prophets must be humble. Also, uh, they say that, uh, you know, when you're interacting with these animals, it brings out 
uh, a level of compassion and gentleness that is needed when you're going to become a prophet. Uh, also, when you're a shepherd, you must be extremely patient. Also, you learn how to deal with different types of, of, of basically animals, the stubborn one and the easy one. You learn to differentiate characteristics and then deal with each one in a manner that uh, uh, is beneficial for them. So all the prophets were shepherds at some point in their lives. Uh, and uh, apart from this, specific prophets, we know they had specific jobs and deeds as well. Our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that ما أكل أحد طعاما قط خيرا من أن يأكل من عمل يده that no one earns wealth that is more pure than to earn from manual labor. And the Nabiullah Dawood, the Prophet of Allah Dawood, he would eat from عمل يده he would eat from his manual labor. So even the Prophet Dawood would do things that would uh, manual labor that would then bring an income for him and his family. And of course, Dawood was a metallurgist, if you like. Dawood, you know, would uh, carve armor out. He would take, you know, um, uh, iron and he would make things with it. And then he would sell. He is literally going to sell and that's going to earn a money for him. And of course, our Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam then also became a businessman. Uh, after he married Khadija, he managed, even before the marriage, as you know, that he took on a managerial role for her and that earned a percentage of money. And then, you know, afterwards as well, he uh, uh, managed Khadija's uh, wealth and, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, just to point out here that in case somebody says, oh, but later on, you know, uh, the Prophet in Medina did have some wealth uh, that was given to him. The response to this is that uh, some of the Prophets, yes, indeed, Allah blessed them uh, to acquire money via political issues and conquests and leadership, but not via teaching and preaching. None of the prophets were ever paid for being prophets, none of them. Even our Prophet even at the late stages of Medina, the King David was a king and he had wealth from his kingdom because he is the king, but he was never paid for being a prophet. He didn't get any rizq or money for teaching the people what needed to be uh, taught. So we have to differentiate between those two roles. Yes, indeed, in the later part of Medina, our Prophet was gifted, uh, you know, gifts because he was the leader of the state, right? And he's negotiating treaties and what things are happening here. And so his role as a leader is different. And indeed, uh, some rizq, uh, some hibat were given and others of this nature. Uh, and this is something well known, the, the, the uh, uh, gardens of Fadak and what happened at Khaybar. These are things that are well known, but that again was as a leader and not something that uh, as a prophet per se, uh, no prophet was ever recompensated. No prophet received any salary, any remuneration for being a prophet and for preaching and teaching the message of Allah. And that is crystal clear in the Quran. It is not allowed for them. It is allowed for the non-prophets. Everybody less than uh, them. It is something that is permissible and we thank Allah for this. Otherwise, there would not be any religious uh, institution because in the end of the day, we need to uh, teach our children Quran and teach everybody needs to be uh, earning the risk. And we thank Allah the Prophet explicitly allowed this and that's why there's no controversy in this um, regard. So this is another unique thing about uh, the, uh, the Prophets and that is that they do not uh, get any rizq, any sustenance uh, via their uh, prophethood. The uh, of the specialities as well of the prophets, and again, uh, much can be said. Uh, we're going to have to uh, again uh, continue this in our uh, in our next uh, lecture. But of the specialities of the prophets is that all of them they have a higher code of conduct. They have 
uh, certain issues that are allowed or not allowed for them and the rest of us don't have the same levels if you like. And so there are a number of tidbits that we get. We don't have the whole, you know, book if you like of a special to them. We don't have, you know, uh, that which is only for them because obviously that's not something we need to be aware of. However, certain things occurred in the life of the Prophet wasallam, And because of this, we know that there's a higher conduct that is required of him, that is not required for the rest of the ummah. And there are aspects of interacting with other human beings that might be halal for us and haram for the prophets. Uh, mubah for us, permissible for us, but uh, not permissible for the prophets. Or wajib for the prophets and not wajib for us. And there are many instances. In ibadat it is well known, there's an entire chapters done. For example, tahajjud was obligatory for the Prophet Tahajjud was obligatory. He didn't have an option. Whereas for the rest of us, it is an option as we are all, uh, we know. It's not something obligatory for us, but for him, it was obligatory. Uh, also, uh, in the Battle of Uhud, the famous incident occurred when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam asked the Sahaba what they should do and they differed amongst themselves. Finally, those that were younger said, we're going to go fight in the field. And so the Prophet entered his house, wore his armor. In the meantime, the companions, they... Uh, uh, the, the elders and the wisers, uh, wiser ones said, why did you do this? We should have followed his advice. So when he came out, the Sahaba said, O Messenger of Allah, we've changed our minds. We're now going to fight in the city. And the Prophet said, what? Famous incident. He said, what? إِنَّهُ لَيْسَ لِنَبِيٍ إِذَا لَبِسَ لَأْمَتَهُ أَنْ يَضَعَهَا حَتَّى يُقَاتِلٍ It is not allowed for a Prophet. Once he has worn his armor, to then take it off until the battle has taken place. In other words, there is a sharia that is higher for them and not for us. There are certain rules in that sharia that apply to them. And of them, once the Prophet has worn an armor, he cannot put it off. Otherwise, people might say, "Audhu billahi this and that and what not. No, not possible. The Prophets are not allowed to take off their armor until the battle is over, right? So now it's too late. To, and, and so they went and they um, fought in the Battle of Uhud, and what happened, happened. Also, uh, we have the famous incident in the conquest of Mecca. Very interesting incident, which again shows you the Prophets have a higher level than us. What is allowed for us might not be allowed for them. And uh, the story is very detailed. I mentioned it in my seerah, again, so many years ago. That a particular, a particular um, person was on the, uh, the, 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 no, the, 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 the list of uh, people who should not be allowed, you know, uh, entry to Mecca, right? So if you remember the story in the conquest of Mecca, there was a list of people that the Prophet said, if you meet any of them, they should not be forgiven. They, because of crimes against humanity, because these people were too evil to be forgiven, okay? Now, long story, and I went over it in the seerah, that one of them, and he had, uh, you know, a relative, and they, uh, he used the relative to, you know, uh, be brought into the camp, covered up, uh, and uh, because the relative was, you know, um, um, uh, somebody that, uh, you know, the Muslims knew and respected for, for legitimate reasons, obviously. So nobody cared about his companion. And so he brought this, this one who was supposed to be executed. He brought him directly to the Prophet wasallam, and then the, the shawl came off. So this was the man who was supposed to be executed on sight. And now he's being brought by one of the senior companions. 
and put in front of the Prophet And when he took off the shawl, so uh, the companion said that, O Messenger of Allah, please accept the bay'ah of, uh, you know, uh, so-and-so, the man who was supposed to be executed. So the Prophet raised his head and he looked, because this was the man that had done long things that he should not have done, right? And three times the request was given, accept his bay'ah. And the Prophet did not utter a word. He didn't say a single thing. And this is atypical because almost, and I'm not aware of any other incident in the entire seerah where it was this awkward. I'm not aware of anything of this nature. That anytime somebody came to the Prophet that had done a crime, immediately forgiveness, no problem, whatnot, multiple times. But this particular person, uh, because of his past and whatnot, there was silence. A second attempt, silence. A third attempt, uh, silence, and then finally, finally, seem somewhat grudgingly, the acceptance was given, and then the man was happy and left. When the man left, the Prophet ﷺ said to the rest of the people around him, wasn't there any wise man amongst you who could figure out when I did not take his allegiance, that I did not want this person and therefore follow the commandment of execution? Because again, there were a list of you know six people, if you remember the story from the seerah, that killed them on sight. Doesn't matter where they are, they have done enough crimes. And this is one of those, right? So the Prophet ﷺ, once the man left, he said, wasn't there a wise, intelligent man? Couldn't you figure out? I mean, you saw me three times not doing anything. Why didn't one of you stand up and execute? And they said, Ya Rasulullah, we do not know what is in your heart. Why didn't you make a motion with your eyes? Why didn't you do that? So that we would know and get rid of him. So you know what our Prophet said? It is not allowed for a Prophet of Allah to act treacherously with his eyes. SubhanAllah, what an interesting tidbit here. You know when I go like this, right? It's not befitting the dignity of a Prophet to do that. When I motion to you, such that the two of us are looking, everybody who's not looking, this is a secret communication, right? So he called it khainat al-a'yun, okay? It's a treachery of the eyes, because my tongue is silent, people around me don't know what's going on, and I'm just looking at you and I'm going like this or that, or whatever, you know, secret Morse code or whatever. Everybody, every culture has eye communication, every culture, right? Things that you look at, don't look at, even how you look at, there's eye culture. Everybody understands this, right? And it's permissible for us. But what did the Prophet say? It is not allowed. It is not befitting for a Prophet. That his eyes have this type of betraying language, right? So he explained to us another aspect of the uh, Sharia for the Prophets. So the Prophets have a higher standard than the uh, rest of us. And again, much, much more uh, uh, can be said. Uh, but inshallah, with this, we're going to uh, wind down and, uh, and uh, conclude this particular lecture for today uh, with the understanding that inshallah, we're going to continue from where we left off. There's still a lot more to do about uh, the specialities that are unique to the Prophets that others are not uh, are, are not uh, given. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things that the Prophets have, you know, and we're going to go over them in a lot of detail. Uh, of them is that the Prophets choose when they can die. 
uh, they're asked permission. And if they don't want to die at that time, they're, they're allowed to another time, which has happened with the Prophet Musa السلام, that they're given that, that choice. Um, they're not surprised by their death. The angels ask them. And these are things that we're going to come to that the Prophets have many specialities that we do not have. And all of these specialities do not change the fact that they are fully human, flesh and blood. They need to eat and they need to drink. And many of them get married. Most of them got married and had children, which means they are biologically normally human. Everything is human about them. And yet as well, they have certain privileges and perks and blessings and specialities that uh, rest of us do not have. Inshallah, with this, we will conclude for today. We're gonna take a break for the month of Ramadan. And we ask Allah for life and for tawfiq and for iman and for taqwa. And we ask Allah Azawajal to accept our uh, siyam and our qiyam and our fasting and our du'as. And we ask Allah Azza wa Jal that He allows us to resume the series after the month of Ramadan. Until then, Jazakumullahu khayran. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. لقد كان في قصصهم عبرة لأولي الألباب ما كان حديثا يفترى ولكن تصديق الذي بين يديه وتفصيل كل شيء وهدى وهدى ورحمة لقوم يؤمنون